Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. injury happens where there is a clash of values. So for example, we're called to be peacemakers and we cannot find a way to make peace. In that, there ends up being this fundamental clash. To think of it as a bruising on our soul is not a far-fetched way to think of that. Shepherding a congregation is intensely intimate work. Pandemic restrictions didn't merely prevent pastors from seeing people face to face. In many cases, they disrupted both ministry and ministers. In particular, the rush to stream worship services online revealed that many congregants associate church with preaching rather than pastoring. This shook the gospel calling of many pastors and eventually left not just ministers, but also members wrestling with an empty feeling, a gnawing pain after the live feed ended. Jesus speaks of the sheep knowing his voice and of knowing the sheep, a process that takes time and presence. That intensely intimate work happens in many ways, hugs and handshakes, communion and counseling. In reflecting on the vulnerable, sometimes passionate stories of pain, three themes emerged. Personal pain, pain specifically caused by others in the church, what one person called friendly fire, and the pain of the loss of presence. Welcome to COVID and the Church. I'm your host, Aaron Hill, editor of Church Salary, a ministry of Christianity Today. Join us as we unpack the results of Church Salary and Arbor Research Group's landmark study on the impact of COVID-19 on the American church. Download your free copy and follow along with our discussion by visiting churchsalary.com slash COVID study. To talk about this common experience of the pandemic, I'm joined today by John Swanson and Hope Zeller. Dr. John Swanson is one of the original members of the Arbor Research Group. He's written several books, including a great work, a conversation with Nehemiah for people who want to be doing great works. John is a hospital chaplain, a writer, a teacher with a background and experience in both higher education and as an executive pastor. Dr. Hope Zeller is a college teacher and a researcher focused on a range of topics from leadership to sports to family and ministry. She's worked previously in ministry leadership for a nonprofit sports ministry. I am blessed to have both of them today, John and Hope. Welcome. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. John, this chapter in many ways was a very personal topic for you. During our meetings, you seemed especially burdened by this topic, especially sharing how pastors were hurting. And honestly, as I've gotten to know you a little bit more, that makes a lot of sense, uh, the work that you do as a hospital chaplain. But one of your insights that resonates with me now more profoundly, now that I've started attending a liturgical church where we take communion every Sunday, is the importance of presence. 
in the chapter, you call it the foundation of our faith. Walk me through why you think presence is about simply more than shaking hands and eye contact, how, as you say in the chapter, it's the heart of gospel ministry. And why is it that losing that presence caused so much pain for pastors during the pandemic? So this one took me a while to understand because I'm an introvert. All through the pandemic, the separation part actually was kind of nice for me. <laughs> um, and when people started talking about getting back together and that desire to get together, I thought it was an introvert-extrovert thing. Mm. Until as we read the comments of pastors, and we felt, not just heard, but felt this deep, visceral um, pain about being separate from the congregations, I realized there's something more going on than... Um, personality styles, which took me back to looking at how Jesus did ministry and realizing that all of Jesus' ministry is focusing around presence. The very idea of the incarnation is the idea of God putting on a body and being present with us. And so even when Jesus talks about this hands-on ministry with sick and hurting and homeless, and then he talks about love one another as his command— after touching the disciples' feet, after eating with the disciples' feet, I realized that this is more than just a stand and greet. This goes to the heart of how Jesus did ministry. And I began to understand why people were so emotionally, spiritually torn by not being able to be together, to have that kind of ministry. So this is a question for both of you. You mentioned in the article that pastors expressed relief at being able to talk about their experiences. Why do you think that is, and why do you feel like it was significant to include this sense of relief, this sense of almost resolution that they were able to achieve in just talking about their experiences? Well, I think when the pastors got together, it suddenly was a realization that they weren't in this alone and that other pastors were experiencing the same thing. And it really told us a lot about what they were going through in the sense that they felt uncared for by the people around them. Mm -hmm. The fact that they were just so gracious and they had so much gratitude that we would even want to know their story. I mean, many of them cried throughout their time with us. We got multiple emails from pastors thanking us for the opportunity to share their story. We got many comments that said things like, this was therapy for me. Mm. And I think that they weren't getting that anywhere else. Mm. And they finally were able to share these deep-seated hurts that they were experiencing and be able to relate to one another that they weren't in this alone. What we know is that grief and pain have a tendency to isolate us because we're going through this, what we feel like alone. And, oh, you too, is an incredibly validating thing. Mm. Hope, one of the questions that we asked in our survey was, how well have you coped with the daily stresses of leading your church or ministry? What stood out to you from that question and the responses that we received? I think in general, what we saw was 
pastors are a hopeful bunch <laughs> by nature, right? And so I think initially a lot of pastors maybe minimized what they went through mm. or they said, oh yeah, we're, we're doing really good. God's blessed us. Or they talk about some of the quote unquote miracles that happened. But when we started to get into deeper questions of specific instances or specific experiences, they started to open up and say, oh yeah, that was really difficult. Oh yeah, that was really painful. But when we, we dialed in and we got to the heart of some of the pain that they were experiencing, it really allowed them to open up, to talk about some of those deep-seated, and, and I say a weariness from their experiences in the pandemic. It's interesting in the chart, the scale was extremely well, very well, moderately well, slightly well, and not well, which is a positive framing overall, which is, again, this kind of the thing that we tend to do in the ministry. But it was very revealing to see how sharply the slightly well and the not well went up in 2020 during the pandemic. And while it's recovered, it's obvious that pastors aren't back to where they were. It seems like there's a lot of pastors out there that are still dealing with this hurt and this pain. And so I felt like that was important for us to focus on. So John, in the chapter, you and Hope walk through all the different ways that the pandemic attacked the health of pastors and congregations. And you actually broke this down in terms of emotional, relational, physical, mental, and spiritual health. And I want to walk through those different angles. But for me, some of the hardest testimonies and answers to read dealt with the emotional health. You describe it in the chapter as a cumulative grief. How did the pandemic create so much emotional pain and burden for pastors? Well, grief is a response to loss. And when you think about all of the kinds of loss that people experienced during that two or three years, um, so there's, mm. there's a baseline of loss through death and job change and all that kind of stuff that happens anyway. During the pandemic, during this season, people had loss in their own lives. Uh, I had a colleague whose mother and father and aunt died during the pandemic. So that's, that's the personal loss. Then there's a loss of leadership in congregations. Some of it was lost through death. Some of it was lost through leaving or changes in a variety of ways. All of our, our pastors, pastoral leaders also have families. And so during that time, their kids' lives were disrupted because of what was happening in school. Uh, their normal patterns of life were disrupted. And so in every part of life, there was change. And those changes, some of them are good, but all of them are change. And so the loss of the ordinary can lead to that kind of grief, that kind of emotional pain. And so that sheer disruption that's happening at home and then the disruption that's happening in all of the lives around them creates a much bigger, a much bigger burden, uh, a much larger experience to walk through and sort through than we imagine if we don't stop and break up the pieces this way. And I think a part of that also comes with pastors are such an intimate part of the death and dying process. And mm. they were 
taken away from that because of uh, the restrictions that were put in place. And so they didn't have the opportunity to be with their people. Some of them talked about um, they weren't able to do funerals. And so funerals actually stacked up and um, Mm. towards the end of the pandemic, they had multiple funerals over a short amount of time. And so that is uh, emotionally draining to step into grief with families over and over and over and over again. And it didn't give them an opportunity to grieve. It all piled up. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the relational pain, Hope. Uh, You talk about that in the chapter and the subheading there is actually, I need them as much as they need me. Talk me through this relational aspect of health and the pain that came with it. Yes, that this gets a lot to this idea of the basis of ministry is being with their people. And so a lot of the pastors talked about how you don't shepherd a building, you shepherd people. Mm. And so they felt like talking to an empty room was really difficult or not being able to see people face to face or some talked about being a prophet in the wilderness. One person talked about when someone would come to the church, I felt like they were visiting me on a desert island. And so just this mm. feeling of of disconnection from the congregation and the people that they ministered to was deeply affecting them um, and the loneliness and the isolation that they felt. And so one pastor even talked about being ghosted by some people in the congregation. I think it was this realization that a part of their calling is to be with people. Hope, you talk in the chapter also about physical health and pain. And, I, you know, it's easy to think that when the churches close their doors, that pastors are just kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs, that they didn't have anything to do. But the changes in terms of technology and what it actually took to do their job to care for people changed a lot. And so one of the questions that we asked was, what extra responsibilities and changes did they see in terms of their duties and responsibilities? Walk me through some of the insights that emerged in terms of physical pain, but also mental health. Yeah, so for the the physical pain, we had a lot of pastors talking about that they became a one-man band for a while, and they lost so much of their volunteer base and many of their other employees just simply because they weren't coming to the church building. And so they became the people that did everything. Um, they mowed the lawn. They they were the janitor. They, they were doing repairs. And so physically, they were just doing much more with Mm. the church building because others were not coming to the building. Additionally, they were also feeling a sense of needing to reach out to families and individuals more so than they were accustomed to. And so the work that it takes to reach out to their congregation individually It was very time consuming. I know one pastor even tried to connect with every single homebound person 
every week. And she says, it's not, yeah, it's not a, it's not a pace that I can keep up after the pandemic, but for her, it was so important to connect with those people who most likely were being forgotten by the people that now had to stay home that would typically go out and see them. So yeah. it just was a lot of work on their shoulders. They also were doing things that they weren't trained in. 70% of them reported that they had an increase in technology duties. Many of them had no idea what to do with that. And they had to be, become the tech director. 64% talked about having to do a lot more administrative work. A lot of them did a lot more pastoral care and counseling. And so it, their work completely changed and increased because people were separated. And it suddenly was this really complicated way of leading a group. And for pastors, because of their call to be with their congregation, it was even a deeper weariness for them. John, the the last aspect of health that the two of you discuss in the chapter is spiritual. Pastors tend to focus on the spiritual health of others. And I can testify from experience that simply preparing Bible studies and writing sermons isn't enough to sustain you spiritually, actually, as a pastor. You've got to put the time and the work in in yourself. But one of the intriguing concepts that you introduce in the chapter is moral injury. Walk me through, what does moral injury have to do with pastors, their spiritual health, and the pandemic? Moral injury originally comes from work with military veterans, where there is a clash of values. So you have this value of doing this thing, and then you have an obligation to or a command to act directly opposite of that value. And in that, there ends up being what they've called moral injury. So for example, uh, in a church context, our value is welcoming people in. And then Mm. when you're commanded to, when you're told to, when you're obligated to close the doors... All of a sudden, Mm. the thing that that we believe we're supposed to do, which is to draw people in, and then we have to do this keeping people out, in that, there ends up being this fundamental clash. And it's a a bruising. To think of it as a bruising on our soul is is not a far-fetched way to think of that. And all through the pandemic, there end up being those kinds of clashes. So if I am following Jesus, then I'm providing this kind of care And now I can't provide that kind of care because I'm also following Jesus. In that tension, there becomes this this sustained bruising in our souls, which some researchers point to as one of the causes of burnout. There can be many causes of burnout, but one of them can be this kind of moral injury. And we kept hearing from pastors talking about, this is what I thought it meant to follow Jesus. And This is what apparently it means to follow Jesus, and they're two different things. And as congregations express opinions on different sides of that, now we have the, we're called to be peacemakers, and we cannot find a way to make peace. And so it's not just a negotiating thing. For us, when Jesus talks about blessing being associated with peacemakers— All of this comes deeply into our souls. So it becomes part of our spiritual identity, all of these things. And so when people in a managerial environment outside church 
have to deal with it. It's bad enough. Now it goes to, oh, and maybe God's not liking me as I'm doing these things. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, definitely. Some of the hardest stories were the ones where you could tell that the pastor felt burdened to protect and care for the lives of the congregation. There's this disease and they're worried about it literally killing people. And yet they were being pushed. They were being called. They felt like it was their obligation to meet in person, to see people. And so that tension in them clearly caused a lot of pain. I think a reminder as well is even in the best of times, we're navigating those things. So in the best of times, we're thinking, is this a person that is comforted by a hug or is this a person that's not comforted by a hug? Is this a conversation that... So all of us across ministry are aware of those tensions. Now we take that baseline tension, that baseline navigating, and then we add in all of these other layers. And it's no wonder that there is a deep exhaustion in every part of our health. And no wonder the body as a whole feels this because while it may not be true for me that I experienced all that, my brother or sister who experienced that, it is true for them. And I have a responsibility and an opportunity Mm. to provide that care uh, for them as well. And I think that so often we do the, the church and we need to drill down and say, and this brother, and this sister, and this brother, and this sister, and this congregation. How do we have comfort and care across all of those? Yeah, so I I was actually going to step back and ask you guys a question related to that. You talk a lot about the different uh, dimensionality of health, these different aspects, but why do you think it's important or helpful for us to consider this at a pastoral and a congregational level? Like, how is this not just a personal issue, right? Like, everybody went through the pandemic and had their own issues. Why is this anybody's responsibility outside of the pastor who went through this experience? Because the command of Jesus is that it's everybody's responsibility. When we go to the Last Supper, and Jesus is sitting at the table and is talking about here's my command that you love one another. To have those opportunities to not separate into all these categories, but to say, no, 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 I have this responsibility, this opportunity to share the love of Jesus with my brothers and sisters in an incredibly tangible way. I think that that the Matthew passage about 
comforting those who are sick to the extent that our brothers and sisters in ministry, our other congregations have sickness in them. Um, we would do it if there were a um, an explosion of cancer in a particular congregation. Other congregations would say, how can we help? So mm-hmm. if it were something far more physical, we would figure out how to do that. I think to go along with that, John, I think an injury to one part of the body is an injury to the whole body. In the report, the researchers quote from real pastors and leaders who participated in the study. These are some of the most moving and revealing aspects of the research. Rather than reading a bunch of quotes, we reached out to many of these pastors to hear from them firsthand. This is the first of those interviews. Well, hi, my name is Brian Sparr. I am a full-time hospital chaplain at Parkview Health System in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I'm also an author and a singer and a songwriter and a touring musician. Brian, thank you for sitting down for an interview. I wanted to talk to you because you shared in one of the community case studies how COVID impacted your congregation in terms of receiving communion, of receiving the presence of Christ. And we titled this episode and and the chapter in the report that it's based on pain and loss, but then of presences in quotation marks, partly because of how well you articulated not just the interpersonal loss of face-to-face connection, but the loss of receiving the presence of Christ in communion. And the pastors who cited this inability to provide spiritual care and administer the sacraments described the disconnection as deeply saddening, heartbreaking, and horrifying. So can you explain what you meant by the quote that's uh, in the report and just give us a sense of how COVID impacted you and your congregation that you were serving? Sure. One of the early disconnects for me was not connected to preaching or delivering a message. There are lots of ways to transmit a message. You and I are talking from a remote distance. I don't even know where in the world you are right now, but we're able to connect and record this interview. But there's something that is tangible about the sacraments that make it sacramental. Um, In my faith tradition, the way that we explain it is that a sacrament is a promise of God that's connected to a physical sign of God and then is instructed to us by the Word of God. And so the fusion of those things, we can do some of that from a distance, but that physical element of it, that physical connection, is really hard to do in a quote-unquote virtual space. And so when I was working through all of the challenges of leading our community through this time, that was the biggest dilemma for me. It was painful, um, as the other pastors described, to not be able to make that connection with people, to share that with one another. And then in my understanding of the sharing of the sacraments, it's not just something that you you take. Mm. It's something that is given to you and you receive. And it's really hard to receive something that is physical and tangible through um, just a screen. So I can hold up a wafer, I can hold up bread, or I can even you know pour water, or I can pour wine. I can do all those things and people can see it, but then I can't give it to them. Mm. And then conversely, like I can't receive it as well. One of the things for me as a pastor was always when we shared in that time of sacrament together, someone would give me the sacrament as well. It wasn't just me delivering it to them. 
it was me participating along with the congregation and receiving. And there was a unification, a unity that happened always in that no matter what else was dividing us, that always seemed to bring us together. Tell me a little bit about your congregation. Uh, You mentioned that you're serving as a chaplain now, and you're doing that full-time. And so I'm assuming that you stepped away from the church where you were serving. Can you unpack that journey a little bit? Did COVID play any role in that? Sure, it, it certainly played a role in it. Just prior to COVID, our church started having some financial challenges. We were a church that served in the downtown area of Fort Wayne, um, served a, a unique population, very under-resourced population, and we were moving in the direction of having some financial concerns. And so I started working part-time as a chaplain while serving, still basically full-time as a pastor at the at the congregation. So there were some changes that were happening, but then when COVID came, the congregation largely because of how it was, um, just the nature of the people that were part of the congregation. It was really, really difficult for people to stay connected. We dealt with things like many people didn't have internet connections or good internet connections or familiarity enough with technology to be able to do some of the more interactive things that we could do online. And so over time, um, the disconnect just grew greater and greater and greater. And then by the time we were able to really reconvene in person, our congregation had dwindled down to the point where it just it was really hard to sustain an essential gathering. And then at the same time, my work at the hospital had been progressing and really felt a call towards a different kind of ministry during COVID. We were serving very much on the front lines, seeing all the things that people talked about and that you would see on the news. In our hospital system, we respond to every death. And so in the two and a half years that we declared as kind of that COVID time in the hospital, I responded to 469 deaths. Wow. Not all of those were COVID related, but there was a portion where almost all of them had some connection to COVID. Wow. And so I just really felt more and more drawn to just the the tangible nature of that ministry, which I think is also related to what I was missing in doing ministry in this virtual space. It felt real to be in a space with people where there was real needs and there could be real connection beyond just seeing a face on a screen. Yeah. Your quote reminded me of a passage from an unspoken sermon by George MacDonald. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but I wanted to read this quote to you and then talk to you a little bit more about not just giving, but receiving in terms of communion and the importance of that, because I feel like this is an important point that you brought out in your comments. MacDonald is trying to wrestle with the question of why do we have to ask God for anything in prayer? If he knows what we need, if he has abundant supplies, why doesn't he just give us what we need as a matter of course? Why do we have to pray for it? And his argument is essentially that God wants us to ask so that we will recognize that the gift comes from him and that as we receive it, it will create a communion with with the Lord. So he says, for the real good of every gift, it is essential first that the giver be in the gift, as God always is, for he is love. And next, that the receiver know and receive the giver in the gift. Every gift of God is but a harbinger of his greatest and only sufficing gift, that of himself. No gift unrecognized as coming from God is at its own best. Therefore, many things that God would gladly give us, things even that we need because we are, must wait until we ask for them, that we may know whence they come. When in all gifts we find him, then in him we shall find all things. And so MacDonald is trying to bring out the point that part of what is involved with this giving and receiving is us recognizing that it's coming from the Lord 
and that part of receiving the gift is actually us receiving him. We're not just receiving a piece of bread or some wine. We're actually receiving him as well. So I just wanted to share that quote with you and then just get you to talk a little bit more about your comment. You said that one of the parts of the tradition that's valued is not just the raising of the glass and the taking the bread, but the receiving and and how that was an important part of communion. Part of part of the understanding can come just in what we call it. We call it communion. You know, we refer to it as the Eucharist, but like when we talk about communion, it's not just the ritual or the practice of sharing in bread and wine. It's what what we're moving in the direction of is this recognition of a genuine communion with the one in whose image we were created. And so there's an invitation in that to come close. And it's hard to actually be in communion with someone if we're always at a distance. And so when we think about receiving the bread and receiving the wine, which in a a unique way that I can never fully articulate or understand or explain that God is uniquely present in that, that bread and in that wine. There's nothing magical or special about the bread or the wine. Sometimes people just buy the bread at the grocery store and it's just the, the cheapest wine that they can find on the shelf or grape juice or whatever it is. But then there's something that God does in that, in partnership with God's promise and God's word, that God is uniquely present. And then we consume that, it becomes part of us. And so there's that reminder in that, which is more than just a cognitive, oh yeah, remember, remember what Jesus did for us. There's that actual tangible reminder that says this God who created all things is actually with me to the point where we share DNA. (laughs) I'm made in God's image. And so this reminder of this bread and wine gives me something that I can put my hands on. I can taste it. I can touch it. I can smell it. I can hold it. And it becomes part of me. And then that weekly reminder um, is so essential in my book because we have a tendency to forget who we are. Mm. And so the journey of walking with God is that journey of remembrance of whose image were we created in? What does it look like to live into that image and express that image fully? And the sacraments are, to me, one of the ways that we can embrace that because it's not something that we do. It's something that is purely what God is doing as a gift that is given to us, and we can receive that. We don't take it from God. Mm. God is giving it to us freely, and then we can receive that, and it becomes part of us. And it helps us remember who God is, what God has done, but it also um, helps us remember who we are as well. One of This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, where you're from, and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. The themes that we have been talking about in this episode, and partly this is because John Swanson, who who wrote the chapter in the report, is himself a chaplain like you, and so I think this is something that is constantly on his mind, is the idea of how 
so much of ministry involves actually being present with people, laying on of hands, uh, praying with people by their bedside, giving hugs and handshakes and things like that. How have you seen your work as a pastor translate into your work as a chaplain in terms of that incarnational component of ministry? I think in some respect, there is an expectation of a pastor to deliver something. We preach and we hear things like, you know, good sermon pastor, or we even talk about preaching in terms of teaching, you know, where we're supposed to deliver something, a lesson that people can learn and then apply to their lives. In chaplaincy, one of the things that I'm learning, and I, and I think this translates well into pastoral ministry as well, is that it's much less about a delivery or a delivery system or getting these words exactly right so that the person can understand it and learn it and then apply it as much as it is helping people recognize that God is already with them. It's not that there aren't things for us to learn. There's good things for us to learn. I like to study. I like to dig into things. But what makes a difference in the hospital room is that somebody shows up, that somebody is present, and then points the people who are struggling and suffering or grieving loss, points them in the direction of God who is already there. And we look for that pinprick of light in often very dark spaces and then just draw attention to that. And so often people don't remember my name or they don't remember John's name as a chaplain. They don't remember the the particular people or the things that we said, because often it's not about what we say. Mm. It's about that presence that points to the presence that actually can bring healing and hope and all of the things that we that we really need beyond a sermon or beyond a lesson or beyond any teaching that I could provide. And so in pastoral ministry, I think we can learn something from that in that we tend to put a lot of emphasis in these areas that it's not that they don't matter, but maybe they don't matter as much in the day-to-day in people's lives as we might think they do. And so I wonder if we shifted our priorities into more of a mindset of ministry of presence. What is it like for me as the pastor to show up for people or to equip people to show up for one another and just be and just be present and just point people to the presence of God who is already there with us. And then, yes, continue to preach because there's things for us to proclaim. Um, Yes, continue to teach because there's things for us to learn. But if I'm going to spend my time as a pastor, I wonder if I could increase the amount of time I spend with people um, and decrease the amount of time I spend kind of locked in my study preparing a sermon um, that I'm going to deliver. And then I just have to start that process all over again. So I know that stepping away from a church, stepping away from your ministry, especially after going through a time of contraction, of uh, decreasing attendance, can be really hard. A huge part of being a pastor is caring for people and trying to pour into their lives. And at a certain point, you have to step back and address your own pain and the wounds that you suffered. How have you dealt with that? Uh, and you know, what did you go through personally during the pandemic? Um. My experience had its uniqueness, but was not unique in that much of what I experienced was commonly shared, not just through pastors, but but with the population in general. It was a, a time of a lot of unknown. No one quite knew how to express themselves or express what they were going through. For me, what has been the most healing thing has been to stay connected with people might sound funny, but like one of my lifelines was to be able to go to work at the hospital every day. Because in a time where many people were isolated, where we were locked down at home, I had a place that I had to be. 
and was allowed to be. And so working with a team of people was really helpful and healing, especially during the early stages of, of lockdown. Then also I see a spiritual director and that was really helpful. Just the process of regularly listening and paying attention to what God is up to, where God is in the middle of a time where it's hard to notice <laughs> what God is doing. And then on top of that too, I experience a lot of vicarious trauma. We respond to all of the major traumas. So I've seen on a regular basis over the last four years of working as a chaplain, people who have been shot, I've been seen suicides, I've seen um, people who've been stabbed, um, horrific car accidents. At this point, I'm up to about 700 deaths that I've responded to. Wow. So there's a lot of things that, that I'm around every day. And there's a lot of vicarious trauma that comes with that. And so so having a good therapist is absolutely essential <laughs> just to be able to process through that. And one of the most helpful practices um, that my therapist has done, especially when some of that trauma imprints itself in a way that is really destructive. I'm not going to be able to remember what the acronym stands for, but EMDR is a, a therapeutic way of taking that trauma and moving it from one location in your brain to another location in your brain where it can actually be managed differently. And so that's been a really helpful process to, to, be, to be part of and a necessary process for me. Well, I just wanted to thank you again for your participation in the study. I think your comment really uh, pleasure. helped clarify some of what we were hearing from other pastors. And as we've noticed throughout this whole process and then interviewing people, uh, I think it's helpful for pastors to understand they're not alone. They're not the only one that went through this. They're not the only one that had these sorts of experiences and had these thoughts and these feelings. Thank you again for sitting down for our interview. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So I feel like it wouldn't be very pastoral of us to spend all this time focusing on pain, health struggles, and an irretrievable loss of presence, and not actually take some steps towards healing. So we have eight other common experiences that every pastor and congregation lived through during the pandemic, but we felt like it was crucial for us to start here, to focus on the pain of pastors. I feel like in many ways, this is sort of the central point of the study, the one of the most important findings of it. And even though it should be obvious, I feel like we don't talk about it enough. Perhaps this topic is close to my heart because I served in vocational ministry for over 15 years. Technically, in the eyes of the government, the pandemic has been over for months now. But in your opinion, what can help pastors and congregations move toward or find healing? You mentioned a number of ways that we can do that in the chapter how how can pastors and congregations find or move towards healing? So I'll start with this. Because of the depth of the pain, when we look at the dimensionality of, of health, in a typical scenario, if we experience injury to one aspect, whether that be spiritual, mental, emotional, it can kind of take from the other areas. So it affects the other areas of your, our health. But in this case, we found that there was injury to all of the areas of health. And so that takes a long time to recover from. If we take the example of if I break my leg, 
it's going to affect my arms because I suddenly have to be on crutches or I have to be in a wheelchair wheeling myself around. But if I break my leg and my arm, that's suddenly a completely different ball game. And so when we look at that with the pastors, they weren't just affected in one area where they can kind of dip into the other areas to make up for the injury. They were affected in all areas. So I think it's important to allow ourselves to acknowledge that pain and that disruption and also give us lots of space and grace and time to heal that significant injury to all aspects of health. I think that a second thing to pay attention to is ritual. One of the things that we know is that funerals, memorial services, are a grieving ritual. They allow us to to remember the loved one. Uh, They allow us to think about what God has done. They allow us to look forward to what our next steps are. And so even though funerals ended up being disrupted, to be able to now, on a first anniversary, on a second anniversary, on a third anniversary, to be able to pay attention to those moments, those times, and to tell stories of, this was really hard. To not be together was a difficult thing. Let's remember that person. Let's remember that event. Let's remember that time as we are then taking our next steps into the, into the future. So that kind of um, offering grief care, continuing to do grief rituals, because when people have not had an opportunity to grieve, it lingers. And so there's still ample opportunity to address the pain from deaths in those times. Yeah, I know one of the takeaways that you mentioned or the applications that you mentioned at the end of the chapter that stood out to me was praying for reconciliation. So we'll talk about this more in chapter seven specifically, but there were other losses than just death. Congregation split, leaders and prominent members and friends left in very public and sometimes in private ways. You mentioned hope that some of the pastors talked about being ghosted by people within their congregation. And that's hard because oftentimes there's no reconciliation. There's no resolution, even if it's the ending of a relationship to know that it's over, to just leave someone. It would be like waking up and your spouse is just gone and there's no note for why. You don't know what happened. They just disappeared. And so without that reconciliation, it's it's really hard to move on, to actually move towards healing. And so I, I, I like that you pointed out in the chapter that acknowledging that loss, praying for restoration, or at the very least being able to find some sort of resolution to those relationships might be helpful. It may not be something that can be fixed or repaired, but at least it can be acknowledged and then we can, we can move on from there. A couple of additional things that we saw that people actually did do is to, number one, plan intentional conversations. One of the things that struck us is that the most prevalent strategy for addressing mental health was regular, informal, intentional conversations. So as pastors talked with peers, 
that ended up being a helpful thing as they talked with colleagues, safe colleagues that ended up being a helpful thing for walking through the grief and loss and the next steps. And so the idea of normalizing and planning peer conversations in therapy ends up being a really helpful thing. And then as well, resting, taking naps, realizing that it is acceptable to rest in part because we are exhausted. One of the things that happens during grief, as people who have had losses know, is that the body needs to rest. And at times we think, oh, there's something wrong with me, as in I must be failing. And the answer is, no, there is something wrong with you, and rest can help with that because of of all that our bodies and minds have gone through. John, at the very end of the chapter, you mentioned reflecting on the incarnation Talk to me about how reflecting on the incarnation you think can help uh, pastors deal with this pain and help people, not just pastors, but parishioners move on. So for years, uh, because I've grown up in the church, I've been aware of what we talk about as the Great Commission. And the focus of the Great Commission ends up being on going and making disciples. And over the last few months, what I've realized is that's the middle of it. But the most important parts of that are Jesus saying, all power has been given to me. And then he ends it with, and I am with you always. So often we move into, am I measuring up? Am I making disciples well enough? Am I? We get that drivenness. And what Jesus says in his last words to the disciples, as recorded by Matthew anyway, is that I have the power and I am with you. And so the idea of incarnational ministry doesn't have to start with us. It ends up being joining with Jesus and not taking, as this was the case in that communion story, not taking communion, but receiving communion, receiving the presence of Jesus. And I think in that we can find healing and we can find a good bit of relief in the struggles that we're walking through these days and in the healing we're needing. Amen. Well, thank you guys uh, both for joining me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, to to talk about and to go through this material with you. Uh, I want to mention, if you want to connect with either of our experts uh, from the podcast today, you can find Dr. John Swanson online at thisishard.substack.com. I like that uh, <laughs> title there. Or you can email John at john.swanson at socialmediachaplain.com. You can reach Dr. Hope Seller online at LinkedIn or through her email address, drhopeseller at gmail.com. Thank you both for joining me today. It's been a pleasure uh, to talk about this with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks so much. COVID and the Church is a production of Church Salary, a ministry of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Aaron Hill, Terry Linhart, and Matt Stevens. Host, Aaron Hill. COVID and the Church is produced in conjunction with the Arbor Research Group and funded by the Lilly Endowment Incorporated through a grant from the Economic Challenges Facing Pastoral Leaders Initiative. Director for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Tyler Bradford Wright is our audio engineer, editor, and composer. Artwork provided by Ryan Johnson. And our art director is Sarah Gordon.